Good evening, everybody. Tonight we will be in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. This is one of those chapters that you could probably just do a verse each night. It's, you know, Paul's a really, really intelligent guy, really super smart. Like, you know, those people you have in your life that are really super smart. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're like, no, everybody around me is dumber than I am. That's great. <laughs> well, I'm not that guy. I like to think of myself in the middle of the road. Don't need to correct me. But when you read chapter 5, this is when it, kind of where Paul shows off a little bit. And it's deep, it's good, it's rich. Um, but it makes dumb guys like me try to teach it look bad when we do it. So we'll, by the Holy Spirit, you will learn something tonight. Let's put it that way. There's some good stuff, of course, that are basics and good solid things that you'll memorize and remember the rest of your life. And then there's some, there's some depth here, though, that this is something you could just chew on for days, you know, days. Um, this is a chapter you go into the desert with a gallon of water and kind of sit and think on and pray about. So anyway, enough set up. Um, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, everything we've read, that's why Paul puts that in there. Therefore, because of everything you've read so far, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, just a, a quick overview. Great, got some good basics there. He's, he's used and strung together many of the words he's already defined in the previous chapters. And so I kind of want to break it down a little bit. Um, you could break it down much more than this, but... Um, I'm going to break it down a little bit so that we can get through the whole chapter tonight. Therefore, having been justified by faith, just as if I'd never sinned, by faith that's been given to us by God, that's what gives us access to his grace. Okay, The justification has taken place. Christ died on the cross for our sins. He's given us just enough faith. Everybody in this world has just enough faith to believe on that truth that Jesus died on the cross. And once you believe on that truth, you've applied that to your life, and therefore you now have access to his grace. Grace is an amazing thing. And I want us to all understand, if we understand anything, we understand this grace. I used to, in Sunday school, try to teach grace to the kids that it's like that Expo whitewash or white, whiteboard cleaner on the board, but that's a mistake. I'd put it on the board and we'd wipe all of the handwriting that was against us. It's been completely removed. But that left them with the idea that it's a clean slate, that more handwriting, now that it's dry, could be applied. And I'd like to modify that example a little bit. If I could ever go back and change anything about Sunday school teaching, it'd be that one thing for sure. I'd like to immerse that whiteboard in the solution of the expo permanently in encased glass and say, now try to write on it. There's no way to make the ink stick anymore. It's just completely coated and soaking in this expo. Every time you try to write on it, it just kind of dissolves and floats away. Nothing sticks to that anymore. That's grace that we have in Christ. 
It's permanent. Nothing ever gets written on that board again. Nothing can be written on that board again. It's absolutely permanent. That whiteboard will stay bright white like new, like it's never been touched before. That's the idea of grace. And that's what Paul's saying in his way. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is not the Ephesians or the Philippians 4 verse 7, the peace of God. May the peace of God, we all like that, and that's important to have the peace of God, but before we can have that peace of God, we have to have peace with God, and that's what Christ has done. Most people in this world haven't realized they're enemies of the Lord, that they're at war with God, not his doing, their doing. And what Christ did was to defeat that battle, to win that war. Now you have peace with God. You have a relationship with him. Christ died to end the conflict, your sin and his perfection. Christ died to make that war end. And that's what war is. War is sin versus righteousness. It's a constant battle. We feel that in our own struggles as we try to walk with Jesus. There's a war going on within us constantly. Christ won that war. And so he wants to declare to us that we have peace with God. That's the starting point of every relationship. There's got to be peace with God. I remember in grade school, we used to chase the girls. That's what you did. You chased the girls on the playground. And they'd squeal and giggle and run and, and, and all. There'd always be that one that wouldn't play, and they'd stand there and look at you. And it's like, that's no fun if you don't run. I want you to run away from us. You're supposed to be scared. We're supposed to have germs, you know. But you'd chase, and you'd chase, and you'd chase. And that would go on, and that was exciting. But the relationship with those girls started when they stopped running from you. And they'd look at you. You'd look at them, and you'd be like, okay, you know, I don't know. I'll stop there. I wasn't homeschooled. And that's when the relationship began. Our relationship has to begin with the Lord where we stop running from him and we stop and look at him and realize he's for us, not against us, that he's not gross, that he's not yucky, that he doesn't have germs, that he's not something we should avoid, but he's for us. And so that's the beginning. Paul wants us to remember that. You've been justified by everything he's done, by the faith that he's given you, and you have peace with the God that you've been at war with, and he made it right. He reconciled himself to you. Shouldn't have been that way, should it? We know that. When someone wrongs us, what do we do? We sit at home and we wait for the phone call. We sit at home and we wait for them to knock on our door. We sit at home and we wait for them to get right with us. That's how it's supposed to be. You need to come say thank you or sorry. God didn't wait around. While we were still enemies, he's knocking on our door of our hearts. And he's asking us, please open the door. I want to eat with you. I'm not mad at you. I know you did me wrong. I know you've sinned against me. I know we've been at war with one another, but I want to be at peace with you. I don't want to be at war. He reconciled himself to us. It's amazing. And Paul wants us to know that. Through whom, not through what. (laughs) It's a person. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace. It's by the Lord Jesus Christ that we have access to, by faith into the grace. It's only through Christ. If Christ hadn't come, there wouldn't be anything to believe on, therefore no access to grace. 
It's a path. It's, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. It's through Christ, and we believe on him for our salvation. Therefore, we have access to his grace. It's that way. That has to go that way. There's no bypassing it. There's no other route. There's no other order. And so Paul lays that out for us. But it's through Christ. That's why I, I, I you know, oh, we just have to have faith, brother. Mm, you're missing a step. You have to have faith in whom? In Christ. You have to have faith in Christ. You can't get to grace without faith in Christ. It's a person. He's a person. He's the access. He's the door. He's the gate. In which we stand. I love that. That's the idea of that whiteboard being uh, encased in the solution of the expo that cleans the board constantly. There's no way to write on it. We stand in his in grace. We stand in Christ. We don't kneel in Christ. We don't grovel in Christ. We don't wonder in Christ. We stand like you would with a friend, like you would at the altar, like you would any place else. You stand with Christ. You stand in him, in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We stand in and rejoice. I mean, I, I can't break that down any further. It's just really good news when you understand that you have access and have accessed that grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Brings joy. I'm not enemies with God. He's not out to kill me. He's not going to kill me. He's not ever going to be mad at me. He's not ever going to kill me. Nothing's ever going to happen to our relationship. Nothing can separate me from this love. Nothing's ever going to change. Our relationship will always be awesome. I can't do anything to mess it up now. I'm encased in this expo. No matter how hard I try to write on myself with sin, I can't do it. It's beautiful. Grace is everything. Chuck's always said this. Every Calvary Chapel tester says this. We rip off each other's words sometimes because there's no other way to say it. Grace isn't the starting point. It's the only point. That's something everybody should steal and use as often as possible. Grace isn't the starting point. It's the only point. It's everything. And Paul wants us to know that, that now we rejoice. We stand in Christ and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can't wait to be with him. Right now, it doesn't feel like the war is over. Right now, it doesn't feel like I'm at peace. Well, he never said that you're going to have peace with uh, the devil, peace with the world, peace with the flesh, peace with sin. You have peace with God. The world is still going to try to take you out. The devil is still trying to, well, cause you to sin. Puts temptation out in front of you to see if your flesh can be lured. Will it be lured? The flesh is always willing to go that route. It is always pulling us in that route. There's nothing you can do about it sometimes. It just is what it is. And the Spirit, if He's in control, if He's ruling and reigning in your heart, you overcome those moments. It's not sin to have that moment, it's sin to give in in that moment. That's the difference. It wasn't sin for them to be around the tree in the Garden of Eden. It was sin for them to partake in the fruit of that tree. He didn't say you couldn't smell it. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. He didn't say you couldn't whatever, but that's awfully close. you know. But he didn't say you couldn't. That's something that I've been personally mulling over in my own brain. The, the, the idea of that. Of the, of the tree in the garden. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gapping on you guys. You're like, what are you talking about? The tree in the garden. He placed this tree in the middle of the garden and says, I don't want you to eat of it. And at no time does he ever interfere. At no time does he ever step in and stop him. I, 
blows me away. Because that's what I do as a parent. I mean, I am a firewall for those kids. Always diving in. Don't run in the street. And of course you should. Don't take. So I'm not supposed to chase my... No, go get them. But you're constantly doing this, but... That's what I'm mulling over my mind. He places this tree in the garden. It's the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing wrong with it except that he says, I don't want you to eat of it. And then he leaves it there. And he sees him walking around it. Now I'm ad-libbing here. I don't know what went down. I don't, I don't know how it all happened. But they got closer and closer. And at no time did he say, okay, I knew it. I knew you guys were going to do that. I just can't trust you with this tree. I've got to take it out of your presence because I know you're going to eat of it. Then you're going to be in big trouble. And I'm just going to prevent this whole thing from happening. He doesn't. He lets it stay. He doesn't build a fence around it. He doesn't build rules and regulations to keep us from it. He lets them touch it. He lets the snake talk to them. He lets them talk back to the snake. At no time does he step in. It's something to think about. God wants us to choose him with our hearts because we love him, because we want to, because he wanted them to obey him. It's not obedience when you step in. It's not obedience when you're always there protecting, build a fence. It's impossible for you to go against me. It has to be a choice. It has to be free will. It has to be there. No time does he step in. That's just something I've been thinking about on my own, and I'm sure there's something more to it than that. We're just starting, I'm sure. God does that to me. Takes me on a road and says, okay. Because he obviously thinks I need improvement in that area, is what I'm getting at. There's something about me that wants to stop others from rebelling. I better stop there because I haven't learned my lesson yet, but that's where we're headed anyway, I can tell. We have this hope and glory in God because one day he will rule and reign because one day we will be with him forever. One day he will be the king and there will be no more sin. There will be no more temptation. That's going to be exciting. Verse 3, and not only that, like that's not enough, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, I think Paul steps in here and says, it, it's, it's exciting to read those first two verses, but we're not there yet. We're still in hope of that glory. For now, we're going to have some problems. Paul had all these thoughts, wrote all these things down in the midst of his ministry, and if there was anybody acquainted with sorrows, it was Paul. Tribulations, it was Paul. He knew tribulations. Not like my tribulations. Got a hangnail, my shoes don't fit. You know, I don't have problems like he does. I wasn't thrown out of the city and stoned to death. I didn't get 39 stripes a couple times. I wasn't floating out in the ocean for a couple days on some driftwood, you know, fighting off sharks or whatever it went down, how it looked. I don't have his kind of tribulations. But he does warn us that they're there. Whatever the level of tribulation that you go through, remember what it's for. It's the first step in this process. The tribulation has to come for the rest of it to come. The tribulation has to come so that um, you can learn perseverance. You don't ever learn perseverance without the tribulation that causes you to persevere, obviously. And then you never have the character that comes from perseverance unless you have to not succumb to your temptation to just let it go. 
go do, hey, you know what? I'm tired of fighting. Let it happen. That means I didn't persevere. That means I never learned and never built character. My character. What's your character? Your character is your intestinal fortitude. It's your guts. It's your ability to withstand. It's your ability to hold on to the truth, to not succumb to pressures around you, to not give in in these areas. That's what character is. Character is getting up when you don't feel like getting up to go to work. Oh, I remember those Monday mornings. I tell you what, I would never want to be in high school again. Any of the problems I'm going through right now, honestly, as I look back, pale in comparison to when I was in high school. Mainly I brought this stuff on myself, but the Monday morning when you knew you had a test and you didn't study and you didn't do anything but enjoy your weekend and the Monday morning came and you just got sick. You weren't lying when you told your mom you were sick. You were literally sick because you didn't want to go. And so you'd fake it. And that was my character in high school. I just don't feel good. And my mom's not dumb. It's Monday. You were fine yesterday. Yeah, but not now. My character wasn't there. It's not there a lot of times. And perseverance means I get up and go Monday morning anyway and I face the music. I get up on Monday morning and I go to work even though that coworker is going to be there. I get up Monday morning and I do what's before me even though I know what's before me. You know, It's character. I say the same thing to that person to their face that I say behind their back. I'm the same person in both instances. I don't smile and wave and then I whisper about them when they're not looking. It's character. Perseverance produces character. And then character finally at the end of it produces hope. It seems like a funny thing to come next. Hope. Shouldn't it be like victory or shouldn't it be like money or something? I mean, if money were at the end of this, I wonder how many of us would do better, right? I know I would. So I get money at the end of this perseverance and character building moment? You bet. It's hope. And then he says this about the hope. Now the hope he's talking about obviously is, 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 is being in Christ and, and, and being with Christ forever. That's the hope he's carrying on with. Hope does not disappoint. This hope you have of living forever with God, that hope is not going to disappoint. It's going to happen. It's not like, I hope it doesn't rain tonight. It's going to rain tonight, you know. I can hope all I want, but I might be disappointed when I walk outside at around 8 o'clock or not, whenever you're leaving today. That's when it's going to pour, right? My hope, no, hope isn't as sure it's going to happen. Gosh, I, well, this, doesn't, this isn't going to work one day, but tonight it's probably going to work. I hope the sun rises tomorrow. I hope, the day, I hope there's a Thursday. Safe bet, right? That's the idea. Our hope in Christ is going to happen. Not I hope I get to heaven. Probably not. No, no. I hope in heaven it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. Okay. That's the hope. It doesn't disappoint. And here's how we know it doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Has that happened to you? That's the question. I have to ask myself that question as an attender of church. That's where we all start because we're all here. We're all attending a Wednesday night. Has this happened? Have you had the love of God poured into your hearts? Or have you honestly just always gone to church because that's how you were raised? 
that's not a good place to be, and something has to happen still. It's good news because now you know the truth. You know what? I've just been an attender of church my whole life because we just, that's just always what we've done, but I've never, I don't know what this is. You should. Every Christian should have this. Every Christian should know. Every sh- Christian should have experienced this. The love of God being poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to you. You should have that memory, that understanding. And hopefully, and he's going to describe this later on, that's continually happening to you. The love of God is continually being poured out into your life. You'll have those moments and days or uh, a time with God, a waiting on the Lord where, oh, you know, I had one last Sunday sitting over there in the far corner and one of the, you know, there's up here singing and one of the songs, sometimes those verses just hit me, you know. Well, it's the Lord that hits me and I just, I kind of begin to weep a little bit in the back. I, I do the whole shoulder vibration thing, you know. Hopefully nobody's seeing me thing, but it just hits you. And I'm so thankful at that moment. I'm so truly praising God, you know. Oh, I just love that verse, God, because it's true about you, you know. And it makes me weep to think about that, that you think about me that way. That's that love of God being poured out into my heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That has to happen over and over again. That needs to keep going. You don't water your seeds once. Well, I planted them and watered them. I don't know what happened to them. They never came up. No, it's a constant thing. The sun has to come up. The, the water has to come down. Things have to change. There's this constant cycle going on. Nutrients has to constantly be going into this plant for it to grow and for it to bear fruit. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. He's not a one-time thing. He's constantly pouring into our hearts. And Paul says, you've experienced that, right? Is the idea. He says he has been given to us. In Romans 8, verse 9, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit given to everybody. That's one thing. Everybody's been saved. Everybody, if you're a believer... Everybody's been saved. You've been given the Holy Spirit. He's in you. And that's sure. And that's your salvation. And there's no question about that. Please don't ever question your salvation. But there's another one in Ephesians 5.18 that talks about, I don't want you to be drunk with wine. I want you to be drunk in the Spirit. Now, the only reason you would write something like that to somebody is to let them know there's an option here. There's a choice. This can happen to you or it might not, believer. You have the Holy Spirit. He's been given to everybody. That's a fact. But I want you, therefore, to purposefully be drunk in the Spirit. Some have taken this to extremes. I remember when we were in Costa Rica on our missions trip down there with JC. He was six. A little early. Poor kid. I drug him everywhere. You're fine. You're going to be a man. I'm scared. I want to go home. Ah, Come on. You know, uh, one of those parent fail moments. But he survived. Of course, look at him now, right? So, but this Ephesians 5.18, this drunk in the spirit, means just that. I want it to affect you like alcohol would affect you. Now, hopefully none of you know what that's like. Some of you are like, I don't know what it's like. Good. Good. But Paul trusted that everybody knew what that was like when he wrote that. You know, when you're drunk, I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. So it's a little hard to explain, but the idea is it affects every part of your life. It affects your emotions, your balance. It affects your brain. It, pre- pre- 
It affects your thought process. It affects your decision-making skills. It affects everything in your life. Like alcohol, being drunk affects you completely and utterly. I want the Holy Spirit. I want that in your life too, that you think about the Holy Spirit. He gives you wisdom on every situation, that he keeps your balance in your life, that he's bringing your relationships together. That's a choice you have to make. Romans 8, 4 through 5 talks about walking in the Spirit. We'll get to there in a couple weeks. That's on purpose, which means you don't have to, which means it's possible to not. You have the Holy Spirit, you're a believer in Christ, but you need to be drunk in the Spirit, and you also need to walk in the Spirit. Those have to happen. Those are choices, and that's what he's talking about. Holy Spirit's been pouring his love into our lives since he was given to us. Verse 6, back in Romans chapter 5. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wants us to know that we had no strength in ourselves, that we had no ability to cry out to him, that we had no thought of God in our minds, no one was seeking after him, that he died for us, the ungodly. We're the ungodly. We're chapters one and two and a half. That's us. When Paul writes in Romans 1, chapter 2, and chapter first half of chapter 3, that's us, the ungodly. He wanted to make sure we were all brought underneath that banner of needing a savior and that's why he writes those things so he's taken us to this place now remember you're the ungodly christ died for the ungodly not for the godly there's no reason to die for them they're they're going to heaven even though there are none the godly go to heaven the ungodly they need a savior i died for them now that's really important because have you ever witnessed to somebody and there's a lot of different arguments against Christ that you'll run into. Um, some of them are, I don't believe in God. I can't believe there's an actual invisible man up in the sky making all these things happen. I have a hard time believing that we just appeared. I have a hard, you know, there's a lot of those arguments. But there's one argument that you'll hear around here a lot, I think, in our neck of the woods. And that's, I'm too far gone. I'm too much of a sinner. Now, that's a really cheesy lying way because they don't mean that. I'm Honestly, people that say that, they don't mean it. What they mean is, isn't that a very humble way for me to say I, I don't have to have Christ in my life? That's what they're saying. Oh, I, I can't have Christ in my life. I don't want him in my life anyway. But I'm just too far gone. I'm too far gone. You know, drama. That's not what this says here. It says that Christ died for the ungodly, therefore you're without an excuse, even without excuse. Take that from you. Let me take that from you right now. God's word says he died for the ungodly, and you're the ungodly. You just said so. You're the worst of the worst. Well, he died for you. So that's taken off the table. That's no longer an excuse. I used to come at it this way. Nobody's too far gone, son. Nobody's too far gone. And I buy into that. I like this method better. I like Paul's method better. No, he died for the ungodly too, so that doesn't work. Now what's your excuse for not coming to Christ? Kind of a rough way. I'm getting old and crotchety in my old age, but, you know, I look past that stuff now. Those feigned tears and that fake 
I just, I don't think I could ever come to God. Mm. That tells me that this verse isn't true over here where Christ said that the only reason men don't come to Christ is because they love their sin. And you're saying you hate your sin so much that you can't come to Christ. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. But if that's how you feel, fine. Here's what God's word says. He died for the ungodly and you just said you're the ungodly. So you're clear. He's died for you. He's taken away your sin. Now what? What's your next argument? But he died for us while we were still sinners. He says, you might die for someone who's righteous, and then he changes it. You might even die for someone who's good. What's the difference? Well, the righteous man makes sure that he doesn't sin or she doesn't sin. That's the righteous one. A good man makes sure they don't sin, but they also take care of other people. They work outside of themselves. So you could really die for someone who's very good-natured and they're a great person and they do a lot for other people, that person. I remember in sociology class, I had several of them. I had one at junior college. I had one in high school. I had one in actual college. There's always this college and it's the same story. There's 10 people that can fit into a boat and you've got 11. How do you decide who doesn't go in the boat? And we'd sit in subgroups and think about it. Well, hmm. Well, they're a family man. So he, and you go through all the arguments, and that was the idea, to get you confused and get you to see, see, morality is not that simple, is it? Who do you toss into the water? See, and this is when you need to step in as a Christian. No, by now, Jesus, the 11th man's already jumped in the water while you're discussing it. The only one that deserves to be in the boat is already in the water and drowned himself so that you all can stay there. That's what Christ has done for us. Throw that sociology test out. Sociology is so stupid. And psychology. Soapbox, going to hop off now. But Christ defeats all those arguments. Christ defeats all those brilliant intellectual man-made arguments. He just crushes them with his truth that the only person that's going in the water is Christ because he's the only one knowing where he's going to end up. You all need to live a little bit longer to make sure that you make the right choices to choose him who died for you on the cross. I mean, it's just so simple. There's no talking about it. There's just dying. And so it's easy to die for the most righteous guy, or the goodest guy in the boat, and maybe a righteous guy. But would you die for the worst guy in the boat? Jesus does, did has. He moves on then. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, by his death, we're justified as if we'd never sinned. We shall be saved from wrath through him. He described the wrath in chapter one. Remember, the wrath of God is being brought upon the ungodly. He saved us from that wrath. That wrath is not coming anymore. That wrath will never come to us. There's no way to get that wrath to come to us. We're encased in the expo on the whiteboard. Got it? For if, um, for if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's funny he has to write that. Remember how you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he reconciled you together with God when you first got saved? Yes, I do. What makes you think that now he's going to throw you out of the boat? What makes you think now he's going to get rid of you? Don't you understand that if he, you hated him and he died on the cross for your sins, you were reconciled with him? 
What makes you think now that you're reconciled to him that he's going to throw you out? You're closer to him than you ever have been. In other words, I saved you when they were the worst. Now that you're better doesn't mean I'm going to save you less. It means I'm going to, it's getting better, you know? And Paul has to write that down because we somehow in our brains get the idea that God gave us a push on our bikes, but it's up to us to pedal up the rest of that hill. And if we don't, you're going to tip over and you're going to die, you know? No, no, no. No, I, 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 I got you all the way there when I died on the cross. You're all the way there. It just hasn't happened yet. You're there. That's what hope is. You're in heaven. John's already seen you. He already wrote about you in Revelation. You're already there. He wrote about you. You just haven't showed up yet yourself. And Paul has to remind them of that. That's why he writes to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you've turned so soon from the truth, this beauty that you've had? Now you think you're going to be perfected by the law. The law can't do anything more for you than what Christ has already done. You can't have that. You shouldn't have that. You shouldn't even have that thought. I want that out of your mind. You're never going to get more saved. And not only that, he says in verse 11, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You'll see that come up several times. That should be my walk with Christ. Free, liberty, rejoicing. Those three things, that attitude, that understanding keeps us from sin, causes us to walk in righteousness, wants us to get closer and be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can fulfill the things we want to fulfill and do the things we want to do, which you'll get to here in a little bit. Chapter 7, Paul's going to struggle and write about the struggle of the flesh. In chapter 8, he's going to talk about it's by the Holy Spirit that you beat chapter 7. We'll get there. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, Adam, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not, is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death, this is a parenthetical statement, that's why I'm reading it like this. It's very long. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. There, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if, by one, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's where he gets a little heady for me. It's a simple concept, I think. When I think about the unfairness of Christ dying on the cross for my sin, how does that work? None of us would say that would work. If I killed somebody and Mike went to the electric chair, no one would say justice was served because I didn't die because I was the offender, right? 
That's why Paul brings this up. Well, if that's not fair, neither was it fair than that Adam sinned and brought sin upon the world. So just like Adam sinned and ate of that fruit, we all sinned after him, having that ability to be disobedient to God. It transferred us. So how do we get rid of it? By sending the one man to take care of the one man's offense. One man needs to be righteous. So it is fair. It works out that way, is the idea. And Paul writes it in a much more eloquent way, but for me, I was like, ugh. It's not like Adam in the sense that Jesus is a gift. He's a gift. And it's said several times in here. That's the difference. It's a gift, it's a gift, it's a gift. You have to open it. You have to receive it. That's why we say, do you want to receive Christ? It's not Christianese. It's actually biblical. Do you want to receive the gift of forgiveness? Do you want to accept salvation through Christ? You have to have some effort. You have to take it out of the hands of the creator who's offering it to you. That's something that we must do. And so he says over and over and over again, it's a gift, it's a gift, and it's a gift. Okay. Now, um, hmm, where am I? I know where I'm at. I know I'm in 19, but is that feedback... Can you hear that, or is it just me? It's up there. Okay. All right. I can hear this deep bass sound. It's kind of making my ears rattle. Sorry. Okay. So, therefore, verse 18, As through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Who does Paul blame for the sin in the world? Eve or Adam? Adam. It's Adam's fault. It was never Eve's fault. Who ate it first? Eve. We got robbed, guys. No, no, no. See, when you read 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 14, we read it kind of funny sometimes. It says that um, I don't allow women to rule over men or to teach men because it was Eve that was deceived, but Adam ate knowingly. That's the difference. See, Adam knew he wasn't supposed to do it. Adam had full knowledge and understanding of what the law of God says. God's word was spoken to Adam, don't eat of this fruit. It wasn't spoken to Eve. Eve wasn't even created at that time. It was Adam that was told. So Eve was deceived. Adam knew Satan was a liar. Adam knew Eve shouldn't have ate it. Adam ate it anyway. Paul says it's Adam's fault. And I bring that up also because Paul believed in Genesis chapter 3. Paul believes it's an actual event. Paul believes this is actually how sin entered the world. Paul isn't saying this is allegory. This isn't some fantastic legend. It's a true story of what happened in the garden, and it's Adam's fault. And here's why I bring that up, because you can't believe in Romans chapter 5 that he's used it here if you don't believe in Genesis chapter 3. So the, the, be careful about blacking out these verses in our Bible or those that tend to black out these verses in their Bible saying, well, that's just not scientific and I just can't believe that. I can still have Christ with that. No, no, no. 
when you black out a verse over here, you have to black out all the verses that are associated and rely on that verse for proof. So Genesis, or Romans 5 doesn't work, and Christ doesn't work, and the truth of Christ doesn't work if Genesis 3 didn't really happen the way it happened. It has to be. So then you block out Genesis 3, then you take out Romans 5, and believe me, by the time you're done, you have a completely blacked out Bible. They're all dependent upon one another. You can't take out one link in the chain and have a solid chain. You can't. It breaks. The whole thing falls apart. God's word is faithful and true, teaches itself, interprets itself, relies on itself. It's unbreakable. Okay? Throw that out there for you. Okay. So, not Eve, Adam, his fault. Um, Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, They're not friends. Grace and sin are not friends. They don't go together. They don't say, hey, you know what, if you do more, I could do more. That's not how it works. Sin and grace are mortal enemies, and that's why it works. That's why grace neutralizes sin is because they're at war with one another. Grace is trying to defeat the effects of the sin in our life and is and has because of the abundance of it. It neutralizes all that sin. It's that expo. It takes it out. But they're, they're enemies. Some people think, oh, you're too gracious. It's too, too much. It's too much. No, no. I'm just waging some serious war here at Calvary Chapel against sin by talking about grace. You can't, uh, you can't say enough about it. That's how sin's defeated. That's how sin's neutralized. That's God's weapon against sin is his grace. Grace is everything. It's not the starting point. It's the only point. Grace is to sin like hot is to cold. It's the same as light and dark. They're opposed. They're juxtaposed. But you increase the light to make the darkness go away. That's grace and sin. Do I want sin to be removed from my life? Do I want sin to be removed from my congregants' lives? As a pastor, then we talk about grace. We embrace grace. We learn about grace. We understand grace. We apply grace. It's impossible to not fall in love with this God when you understand how much grace he has for us. Saw a stupid post. You know, they take snapshots of these uh, texts that go back and forth with one another. You know, these things. Don't waste your time. I do. (laughs) It says... I'm sorry, honey, I went out with my friends last night and cheated on you. And the other one was, that's okay, I did something worse. What? Stayed at home and trusted you. Oh, gotcha, good slam, good get one. That's not our God. Our God would never write that other side. Our God never looks at it that way, never sees it that way. God, I sinned against you, that's all right, I love you, I love you. I love you with everything I have in me. I, I want you to come home to me. I want you to come back to me. I don't want you to run away from me. So you transgressed our relationship. So you transgressed against me. I love you. I have waited for you. I've even cooked a meal for you. It's waiting for you at home. I've got more. Oh, I've got stuff to show you. Come this way. I want to, ah, you know, I want to take you places. What love is this? That's what John writes. 
What love is this? When John grasps grace, when he grasps the love of God, when he's writing John 1, he stops and pauses and what love is this? I've never seen this, experienced this before. It draws me to you. I'm sucked in by this amazing, unquenchable, unstoppable love that you have for me. I don't understand it. It doesn't matter what I do. You still love me. This blows my mind. It makes me stare at you. It makes me wonder about you. It makes me think about you all day long. I'm infatuated with you, God. Perfect. We can't talk about grace enough. Can't share it enough. You can't give it enough. When we understand how much he's given to us, it's really hard for me to hold something against other people. It's really hard for me. I don't have to wait for them to make it right with me because he didn't wait for me to make it right with him. He just gave it to me. So I give it to you and you give it to me. And you give me grace and you give me a break and you overlook my sin because love overlooks a lot of sin. Covers a multitude of sin, he says. And that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this love, for this grace. We're so thankful for it. It's why we're here tonight. It's a terrible storm out there. It's unbelievable weather out there. And here sit a hundred plus people wanting to hear and worship you and hear your word. That's why we're here for you, for your word, to give you honor and glory. We stand when we sing because we give you respect and honor like you deserve as a king. We sit down in rest for the rest of the worship songs because we worship you in spirit and truth and you are worthy of everything we can give out of our hearts to you and it brings us peace. And now tonight, God, you've given us this Romans chapter 5 from your beautiful, lovely servant, Paul, who understood this stuff so well that he could write it so that we could receive it. So thankful for that, God. And we've been blessed. And we are closer to you than we ever have been. And we have peace in our hearts more than we had when we came in the doors. We're bursting with pride in our God because of who you are and how wonderful you are. And we can't wait to tell everybody about you. The love of our life. And God, we know you feel the same way about us because you tell us so. And that's what's baffling. You're worthy of our love, affection, everything we can give you. We're so unworthy, and yet you bestow it anyway. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for looking past all my faults, all my sins, all my failures, all my transgressions, everything that is that causes me to flee from you and be enemies with you, and yet you love me. Thank you for that grace. Lord, we pray for um, our night tonight as we go, that you'd Give us protection, journey mercies on our way home in our cars as we travel, no matter how far, God, protect us. Um, Lord, we pray for tomorrow as we run into people that may need grace and they may not deserve it. They may need forgiveness and they may not ask for it. Lord, help us to be gracious and merciful people, Lord, and uh, like you are to us. And then, Lord, help us to tell other people about you, this, um, this wonderful love you have for us and for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.